Today we end the introduction to Ephesians, what I refer to at least as the introduction, Paul's lengthy one run-on sentence in the Greek. And so I think it would be helpful just before we read our text and finish this epic introduction to remind ourselves of all of the spiritual blessings that we have covered so far. The introduction began with Paul blessing God the Father for blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he immediately goes on to just briefly sort of explain some of these incredible spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And some of the ones that he mentioned that we've covered is the spiritual blessing of election, of holiness, adoption, redemption, wisdom, and even the inheritance of heaven itself. But Paul ends his list of reasons to praise God with a crucial gift, a crucial spiritual blessing, and that is the Holy Spirit himself. The indwelling of the Spirit of God is one of the most important reasons we have to bless God the Father. And so therefore, we actually have the privilege this morning to turn our attention upon the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Paul, Paul, Paul has been speaking of Christian salvation very broadly up to this point. He began with this sort of cosmic view of salvation and just immediately burst into praise for all of the general spiritual blessings that all believers receive in and through their salvation. So Paul has been speaking about a salvation that everyone enjoys, that all Christians experience. But what he does in verse 14 is he starts to get very personal. After speaking of this salvation that all Christians experience, he turns to his audience specifically. And he reminds them, you've experienced this. This, this broad salvation I've been talking about. You too, remember, you believed in Jesus and you receive these things. You have these things already. Paul gets very pastoral in this moment. And he transitions from the broad to the narrow. And he speaks directly to the Gentiles in Ephesus. He draws them into God's salvation personally. And he, he appeals to their personal experience. And he gives them theological language to understand what they've gone through. He's going to give them some theological categories to understand what they experienced when they believed in Christ and received the Holy Spirit. He reminds them, in other words, of what happens when any person chooses to follow Jesus. When any people hear the gospel and believe in it, something of crucial importance happens. They receive the promised Holy Spirit. That's how Paul defines him. 
in verse 13, that in him, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, why is Paul referred to the Holy Spirit as a promise? When was the Holy Spirit ever promised to you? How is the Holy Spirit a promise? Well, the Holy Spirit, it was actually a promise both by the prophets and by Jesus himself. All throughout the ministry of the prophets, there was this foretelling and promise of the Spirit coming to fill God's people. And as a matter of fact, the way, one of the ways we know this is, uh, you don't have to turn there now, but in Acts chapter 2, right after Pentecost, right after the, f- the filling of the Spirit, and Peter's preaching to the Jews, he tells them this, this spiritual blessing that you've received, this is just the fulfillment, and he quotes from Joel. He quotes from one of the minor prophets who made a prophecy that the sons and daughters of God would be filled with the Spirit. So the prophets themselves were the ones promising the coming of the Spirit to God's people in a future age. But you can also read, I would recommend, through the book of John and see how often, especially towards the end of the book, Jesus himself promises to his disciples the Holy Spirit would come. He says things like, it is good for you that I leave, for when I come, the promise from my Father will be sent to you, and he will come among you, right? And we have more than one verse from Jesus in that. So the Spirit is someone who's been promised by the prophets and by Jesus for a very long time, and Christians in this dispensation get to experience and enjoy the blessings of that promise. When we believe in Jesus, we receive this promised Holy Spirit. And so this raises an important question for us. It might sound a little blasphemous, but it's important for us to answer this question because that's what Paul goes on to do. And the question is this, what's the big deal? Why is it so important? Why should I care whether I have the Spirit or not? What's so great about the Holy Spirit? What purpose is He serving? Why is this a spiritual blessing? Why is this a reason to praise God? Why is the Spirit important? Now, to answer this question exhaustively, we would need to really scour through the whole Bible, especially the New Testament. This is not the only place that addresses the role and the importance of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not trying to give them an exhaustive compendium, if you will, of everything the Spirit does. But Paul is going to give us two reasons today of why this Holy Spirit indwelling us is such an incredible, precious gift. Of why it is such an act of goodness and mercy from God to receive the Spirit. He gives us two reasons for this. And the first reason is that the Holy Spirit is God's seal. The Holy Spirit is God's seal. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit acts as a seal. That's one of his benefits, is God seals you with the Spirit. And so, of course, we have to ask a next question. What does that mean? What is a seal? What's so good about a seal? And I've kind of come up with three subpoints here. There are three ways that we need to understand what a seal is. What is the purpose or design of a seal? And a seal essentially does three things. The first one is its most basic, is a seal is a marking. When you seal something, by definition, you mark it. You put a mark on it that distinguishes it from other things. Uh, One contemporary version of a seal is similar to a, a brand. Ranchers put a seal or a marking on their cattle. And there's, there's an importance to this marking. It separates this, their cattle from other cattle. 
right? So by at its most basic level, a seal is a marking. It marks something and it separates it from everything else. So the spirit is essentially our brand, right? God is kind of a divine rancher who brands us with the Holy Spirit. He marks us and sets us apart as belonging to God. And so that really leads us to the more important point, the less basic point. What's the purpose of a mark? What's the purpose of a seal? If a seal is a marking, what does a marking accomplish? What does a mark do? And that leads to the second sub-point, which is that a seal authenticates. A seal, the purpose of a seal is to authenticate. In other words, when something is sealed or marked, it is essentially given an authority. It is, it is proving that this is what it says to be, or it belongs to the person it claims to belong to. It authenticates whatever is sealed. Uh, let's give some practical examples of that. We don't use this as much because we live in a technological age where we text and we send emails and stuff. But before the technological age, people used to oftentimes send letters and they would, when they sent the letter off, they would close it. They wouldn't lick it, right? And we have, even that's new technology, licking this letter. They would close it and they would put hot wax on it and then they would have like a family seal or a family marking and they would seal the letter. And that not only closed it, but it marked it as and it authenticated it, right? If I get a letter and it says it's from my mom, how do I know it's actually from my mom? How do I know it's not a forgery? Well, because who else has this seal? This is the family seal. Another example of this is uh, when kings would give edicts, right? They didn't have PA systems. They didn't have uh, news stations, right? So how does a king give an edict to the whole land. Well, one of his representatives would come in and he would read the edict of the king to these small villages and say, the king has declared. How would these villagers know? How do I know this guy is telling the truth? How do I know that's not a forgery? How do I know some random guy hasn't come in here and just tried to run the town by making up some letter from the king? Well, again, the kings would have signet rings. They would have these rings that would seal and it would identify this truly is from the king. This belongs to the king. You need to listen to this, right? Same thing, diplomas. Universities would seal diplomas. So you kind of get the point. The purpose of a seal is to identify as a mark, but also authenticate. This really is what it's claiming to be. And so this means that when you receive the Holy Spirit, that's God's way of saying, you actually belong to me. This person is not a forgery, this person is not a fake or a phony. This person actually belongs to God. The Holy Spirit authenticates your relationship to God, authenticates your salvation. And this is important because our own experience today reminds us of how many people claim to be Christians, but shortly sometime in their life prove definitively they were not or they are not. And additionally, we have Jesus' own words. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? But I will say to them, away from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. This is a world filled with frauds and phonies, forgeries. The Holy Spirit is the seal that tells God and tells everybody else, this one's real. This one belongs to the family of God. The Holy Spirit validates this to you. And by the way, Paul says this explicitly in another letter. You don't have to turn there, but just hear these words from Romans chapter 8. Paul says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God 
are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit of adoption. If you've received the Spirit, you're adopted. You belong to God's family. And the Spirit will testify to your soul that you belong to God's family. And the Spirit is the one who gives you the right to call God your Father. The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. He's a seal. He authenticates you. And keep in mind, by the way, to not lose sight of our overall context, keep in mind how important this would have been to the Gentiles receiving this letter. I don't know if you remember when we began our introductory sermon where we kind of covered the whole context of the letter, but you're going to see pretty short, not far from now, that what was happening to these Gentiles is that they were essentially being demoted as sort of second-class citizens because they were Gentiles and they were not part of the Jews, the chosen people. And we see all throughout the New Testament how often the apostles had to fight with Jews and convince them, like, Gentiles are part of God's people now. Gentiles are heirs of the promises now. They're part of the covenant now. And the Jews were pushing against that. Like, no, they're not. And so Paul here is communicating to these precious Gentile believers that I don't care who your dad is. I don't care who your granddaddy is. I don't care about the color of your skin. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Then you are God's. You belong to Abraham. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't need any proof. You don't need a bloodline test. You don't need ancestry DNA. You don't need any of that. You need the Spirit. He authenticates you. You are God's. God is the one who authenticated you. As a matter of fact, I want you to see this. I'm sure you believe me. I'm sure you get the point. But I want you to see this. So keep your marker here. And turn to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Acts, chapter 15. The beginning of Acts is known as the Jerusalem Council. Because what has happened here is as the gospel started spreading through the Gentile world, the Jewish elders were concerned that Gentiles were being considered part of the people of God. And so they basically compromised by saying, okay, fine, fine. Gentiles can be saved. We'll grant that. But they have to be saved through Moses. They have to be saved by first becoming Jews. So they need to be circumcised and they need to follow the laws of Moses because you can't be a Gentile and be saved. You have to be a Jew to be saved. So the Gentiles need to become Jews and then they can be saved. And so the apostles and the, and the Jewish elders met in a council to debate this issue and to definitively answer this question. Are Gentiles saved only through the laws of Moses, only by becoming Jews, or can they be Gentiles and still be saved? And notice how the apostle Peter proves that Gentiles can be saved without having to become Jews. In Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 9. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. What is Peter appealing to? Peter is saying, when you guys got saved, you received the Holy Spirit. Guess what happened when the Gentiles got saved? The same thing. 
So what is God telling us? He doesn't see a distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore. The purpose of the Spirit was to bear witness to the Gentiles, okay, I don't need to be Jewish to be saved. God has just saved me because I've received the Spirit just like the Jews and I have the same faith and the same gospel just like the Jews. You see the way the Spirit marked them and authenticated them? They belong to God. They've received His Spirit. So let's turn back to Ephesians. We've seen that the blessing of a seal is that it marks you for the purpose of authenticating you But there's one more other thing implied in this concept of a seal. And that it secures you. These are all related. But the blessing of a seal is that it it secures you. When when God sets a seal on us, he does so for a reason. Right? He's doing it to protect us. When a rancher brands his cattle, what he's ultimately doing, he's marking out the cattle that he's going to keep safe. He's not going to let these cattle fall into a ditch. He's not going to let this cattle get stuck in the wires. If this cattle gets sick, he's going to administer shots to it. He's not concerned about everybody else's cattle. He's concerned about the cattle that bear his brand. The branding marks it as belonging to me and gives a sense of comfort and assurance and protection along with it. I, I hate to use this example, but it's similar to how sometimes gangs work. You have to get a certain tattoo. And once you have that brand, you receive a very intense protection that people who don't carry the brand, that don't carry the mark, receive. Right? So with the coming of a seal, there comes this sense of securing and protection and family. Paul, by the way, I think says this elsewhere. In other words, the purpose of a seal is to communicate what Paul means in Philippians 1.6 when he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's seal secures us and it protects us. It's God's way of saying, I've started something in you. You're mine now. I'm going to finish this. It secures us. I think this can, by the way, if you think I'm maybe diving a little too deep and speculating too much, I think this can actually be seen from other places in the Bible where the word of sealing or marking is used. We have examples, especially in apocalyptic literature, of the purpose of a seal or a mark is to provide protection. We see, for example, and you can write down in your notes, Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 9. In both of those chapters, God is about to bring judgment on the land. In Revelation 7, he's going to send angels to bring judgment on the land. And in Revelation 9, he's going to send locusts to bring judgment on the land. But in both of those chapters, he tells the locusts and he tells the angels, my people, I have set a mark or a seal on their foreheads. You don't touch them. You don't touch them. If they bear the mark, if they bear the brand, if they have my seal, you don't touch them. They're not for judging. They're saved from the judgment. You see how his mark, his seal, it protected them. It secured them from harm. We also see the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 9. God sends executioners through Jerusalem to kill everybody. Jerusalem has become so steeped in idolatry and pagan worship that God sends executioners through, you're prophesied to send executioners through and just kill everybody. But not everyone in Jerusalem had fallen into idolatry. There were some that the text goes on to say who bemoaned the idolatry of their brothers and sisters. And in Ezekiel 9, we are told that they were given a mark on their forehead and the executioners were not to touch them. They belonged to God. And God secures his people. God protects his people. 
When we are sealed by God's Spirit, we are marked and authenticated as God's children. And Peter says that we are those who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So why is it such a big deal to be sealed by the Spirit? Why is it such a big deal to have this seal? Because it marks, authenticates, and secures us. This is why the Holy Spirit is such a blessing. He is God's seal. But that's only the first blessing of the Spirit. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is a seal. Paul tells us there's another reason. There's another purpose that the Holy Spirit serves in this text, which is why he is such a blessing to us. And that is found in verse 14. Notice what he goes on to say. That when you believe in Christ and are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee. He's God's guarantee. Just briefly, if anyone feels comfortable sharing this, does anyone's Bible use a different word other than the word guarantee? Does anybody have a different translation? Catherine, what does your Bible say? A pledge, very good. Any, any other words? Was it? Earnest, yep. Yeah, so the, the ESV chose the word guarantee, and since I'm, I'm reading from the ESV, I made that part of the notes. So that's point number two. God is, the Spirit is God's guarantee. But there are lots of different words that could fall in here. Words like guarantee are used. Words like pledge are sometimes used, or earnest is sometimes used. What do all these different terms mean? Like why, if the English translations are using different words, what are they trying to get at? The Greek word underneath this concept is, I think the easiest way for understand it, is this was the Greek word for a down payment. In secular culture, that's how this word was used. It's a pledge of paying something the full later. It was an earnest, earnest money that something later will come. It was a guarantee that something else will come. The Holy Spirit is actually called God's down payment. He has paid us a down payment. How funny is that? And by the way, this is why some translations choose to be very literal. The NIV and the CSB uh, will actually use the word deposit or down payment. The Holy Spirit is our deposit. He is our down payment. God has paid us with the Spirit a down payment. How is the Spirit a down payment? Like how are we to understand that? That's kind of a bizarre connection for us to make. Uh, the Spirit serves the purpose of being God's promise that the inheritance we learned about last week is coming. All right, if you remember the blessing we looked at last week, in Christ we have received an inheritance having been predestined according to him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. So we've received an inheritance. God has promised us an inheritance. How do you know you're going to get it? How do you know? God has given you a down payment, an earnest. He's given you earnest money. I promise the inheritance is coming. I promise the full payment is coming. Here's my down payment to secure that. Here's my down payment to prove that. The Spirit proves the full amount is coming because that's what a down payment is. Yeah, we don't really think about it because it's become so common to pay down payments and we just kind of do it. But what is a down payment? It essentially is a pledge that this full amount that I owe will be paid. So what you're really doing in a down payment is you've got this full future lump of payment and you're reaching into that future lump and you're, you're taking some out of the future and you're giving it to them in the present as a pledge or a guarantee or a promise that the full lump will come. God has reached into our heavenly inheritance in heaven and he's pulled something out and he says, here, here's my promise, here's my pledge, here's some earnest money that you can take confidence in knowing this is coming and that's who the Holy Spirit is. 
In the Old Testament, this is uh, similar to the concept of first fruits. First fruits sacrifices were similar to down payments. You've got this big harvest coming. You take the very first fruits that have come and you give it to God, which was a sign that the rest was coming. And the Bible loves to use the first fruits analogy all over the place. For example, Jesus, next week is Resurrection Sunday. Jesus described the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus raised from the dead, which Paul says is the first fruits of this huge resurrection coming. So how do you know you're going to be resurrected on the last day? What hope do you have? God raised Jesus from the dead. I think he can pull it off. Right? Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. The Holy Spirit is a down payment. He's a first fruit, if you will, of this incredible salvific uh, payment that's coming. It's a small initial portion which guarantees the rest. And so in other words, what Paul is saying is that living your life on earth with the Holy Spirit, you're basically walking around with a little slice of heaven in you. God has taken a little bit of heaven and he's given it to you now. The Holy Spirit, being indwelled with the Holy Spirit is the closest thing to heaven we get on this side of it. And this introduces us to a very, very important theological concept. We don't have time to explore it in depth today, but it's good to be introduced to it. And there is a theological term, and unlike most theological terms, this one's not very big and fancy and high dollar. For some reason, we couldn't come up with a better phrase. But there are theological concepts in the Bible that theologians will refer to as the already but not yet theology. The already but not yet theology. You might discover something in the Bible and a theologian might say, well, that's already but not yet. What does that mean? The name is kind of uh, self-explanatory. But it, what essentially what it's saying is in, throughout Scripture, if you were to read your New Testament, you know, Matthew to Revelation, and you were to start documenting different theological concepts and you were to start marking, okay, is this something that I already have or is this something that I'm waiting for? You would get contradictory answers. Sometimes the Bible will describe some, some issue of salvation as something you've already possessed, something you already have. But then in a different book, in a different verse, it'll describe it as being far off, that you're waiting for it. Right? I can show you Bible verses that teach that when you believe in Jesus, you're saved. Past tense. Jesus himself says over and over in the book of John, believe me, you will be saved. Past tense, accomplished. You've been saved. You're already saved. But I can show you other Bible verses where Paul speaks of those of us who are being saved. Are you saved or not? Are you in the process of salvation or are you already saved? Well, the Bible says both. In a certain sense, you've already been saved. But in a different sense, you've not yet been saved. I could show, for example, I could show you verses in the Bible that speak of the kingdom of God as having already come to earth. The kingdom of God is here, and I can prove that to you. But I can show you other Bible verses which speak of us awaiting the kingdom of God. What is it? Is the kingdom of God here or not? In a certain sense, it is. It's already here. In a different sense, it's not yet here. And we could go on and on and on. There's so many examples in the Bible where it's an already but not yet. It just kind of depends on the sense in which you're speaking of it. And we actually have some examples of that in our own text. For example, according to verse 13, we are, or forgive me, according to verse 14, this inheritance is obviously something we don't have yet. 
right? How can the Spirit be a down payment of a future inheritance if we've already received the inheritance? So according to verse 14, God has promised you an inheritance, but you don't have it yet. You're waiting for it. It's not yet. But notice what verse 11 of chapter 1 says. In him we have obtained an inheritance. So have you obtained your inheritance? Or are you waiting to obtain your inheritance? What's, Paul, would you make up your mind here? We have another example with the concept of redemption. Yet again, notice what verse 7 says. In him we have redemption through his blood. Right? So if you're in Jesus... You've received redemption. It's past tense. You've already been redeemed. But verse 14 actually tells us that we are awaiting when God finally redeems his possession. Now, that's confusing to you right now because of the ESV. The ESV does something in verse 14, which no other Bible translation does, and I don't like what the ESV does here. I think the ESV made a mistake here. The ESV says in verse 14 that the Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Does anyone else's Bible read differently than that? Does anyone else's Bible speak of something different happening than us acquiring possession? Because what the text probably should read is something along the lines of the King James, which says, until the redemption of the purchased possession... In fact, the ESV even has a footnote, which is what I love about English translations. They're not trying to hide something from you. If they've made a, a, a decision of a translation, they're going to give you the info. The English ESVs actually have a footnote in verse 5 where it reads the way I read it. And the footnote says, or, so here's another way you could translate this, or until God redeems his possession. What's happening in verse 14 is God has a possession that he's waiting to fully redeem. And he has not fully redeemed it yet. It's not until we get our inheritance that God has fully redeemed his possession. And the Holy Spirit is God's down payment that I will, I will, I promise, I will redeem this in the end. So to tie this all together, here's what we have. Verse 7, in Christ, you've been redeemed. Verse 14, the Spirit is your promise that you will be redeemed. Would Paul make up his mind here? But these are not contradictions because they're talking about these terms in different senses. And so in one sense, we can speak of them as already. In another sense, we can speak of them as not yet. And so this redeemed possession of God's, this is an already but not yet process. One of the reasons we can do this is because especially salvific concepts, almost all of the already but not yet are in some way, shape, or form salvific. Some are eschatological, but end times, but some of them are about salvation. We can speak of them as being already happened because they've been started and because they're guaranteed. When something has started and it's inevitable, you can speak of it as having already happened. This is why Paul in Romans chapter 8 describes us as having already been glorified. But we've not been glorified yet. 
but it's that the glorification process has started and it's inevitable. So we can speak of having glorification even though we haven't technically gotten there. The example I like to use is, um, you know, let's say that Drew was wanting a promotion. He said, I'm tired of my job. I want to be promoted. And there's an opening for the, the vice president of his company and he applies for it and he goes through the interview and he gets a call one night. says, Drew, congratulations. We are proud to welcome you as the new vice president of our company. So he turns to Chris and he says, good news. You're looking at the new vice president of the company. So he has spoken of this, this office as something he's already received. And in a sense, that's true, right? It's been offered to him. It's his. He's received it. It's been started. It's been offered. He's gone through. But there's a difference in saying, well, that's not technically true yet, right? He hasn't signed the paperwork. He hasn't signed the contract. He hasn't started his first day on the job. So in a sense, he is the new vice president. But in another sense, he's waiting to become the new vice president. When something started and it's guaranteed, you can speak of it as having already happened. So we can speak of ourselves as being saved, even though you're not technically fully saved until you get to the resurrection. But the salvation process has started and the Spirit is your guarantee that it's going to happen. So you can speak of being saved. It's an already, not yet concept. And this is why the Spirit is so crucial in our understanding of salvation. The Spirit applies and initiates our salvation through regeneration. But He also is the guarantee that our salvation will be secured and it will be accomplished. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit of God who makes your salvation inevitable. You don't do that. <laughs> he does that. And this leads to two of the benefits then of being guaranteed. So first privilege of the Spirit is He's your seal. And we talked about three things that that means. The second benefit of the Spirit is that He is your guarantee. And let me give you two reasons why being a guarantee is such a blessing. We've kind of already covered them, but let's wrap them up neatly here. The first one is this issue of perseverance. The Spirit offers us perseverance of our faith. That's why, by the way, some theologians actually call this the perseverance of the saints. God's people are protected and preserved unto salvation. I like the way John Gill says it. He says, If the Spirit of God does thus seal believers and is and continues to be in earnest of their future glory until this time, then they shall certainly and finally persevere. God can't give you a lump of an inheritance that you're not actually ever going to get. There's nothing to draw from. And if you didn't, God would lose his deposit. <laughs> the Spirit is our hope of perseverance, that our salvation is coming and inevitable. He guarantees our final redemption. I, I think Paul says, keep your mark here, turn over, stay in the book of Ephesians, turn just to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. I think this sort of justifies the security of the mark as well as our perseverance, he says in verse 30, he tells believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, your seal is for redemption. It's for that final day when God, according to Ephesians 1.14, finally redeems his acquired possession. There's a day of redemption coming for us when we will be fully and finally redeemed. And the Spirit is our guarantee, not just that we'll get there, but that we'll make it through. That on the day of judgment, like in Revelation 7 and 9, like in Ezekiel 9, on the day of judgment, God is going to judge all those who stand before him except for those who bear the mark. You don't touch them. 
We've been sealed for the day of redemption. He is our, the Spirit is our hope for that great and final day. By the way, I think Paul says this again. You don't have to turn there in 2 Corinthians 5.5. He says that he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And that very thing he's talking about in the context is he's talking about all these Christians who are just desperate to die, basically. They're just desperate to get out of this sinful world, to shed this corrupt body and be with their Lord and be in the resurrection. And Paul says, be patient, but God is preparing us. You're going to get there. He's preparing us for that day. He's, he's, he's getting us there. And how's he doing that? The Spirit, he's your guarantee. He's your pledge. But we not only have this issue of perseverance, but directly related to this then is the issue of assurance. As Paul says in Romans 8, it's the Spirit who testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. It's because of the Holy Spirit that you can actually experience a level of assurance in your life. You don't have to go to bed wondering every night, am I actually saved? Am I actually a Christian? You don't have to die in the fear of thinking, I don't know, I might go to hell, I might not. I have no idea. That's what most of the other religions in the world offer you. That's not what the Spirit offers you. The Spirit offers you assurance. Now, this doesn't even be qualified. Uh, the, we, and in our sinful flesh, we can fall into doubt. We can doubt our salvation. And so the Bible tells us to examine yourselves. It tells us to confirm our calling and election. So this is not to say you as a Christian will never, ever, under any circumstances, ever go through periods of doubt or worry. But the general disposition of the Christian life is one lived with confident assurance that I belong to God. And you get that because the Spirit is your guarantee. He assures you of your salvation. So let's summarize what's so great about the Holy Spirit. He's our seal and he's our guarantee. Among other things, that is why he's so great. That is why he is such a blessing. I can't really say it better than Charles Hodge who said it this way. It is because the Spirit is an earnest of our inheritance that his indwelling is a seal. It assures those in whom he dwells of their salvation and renders that salvation certain. Hence, it is a most precious gift to be most religiously cherished.